0: The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Let's turn our attention now to Acts chapter 12, verse 1. It says, About that time... Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people." So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out, And went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing over our time together around the word. Father, we need you. Lord, without you, I will just be a withered husk, dryly speaking information. And I ask, Lord, that you would let me be your messenger today that heralds your gospel with fervency and with skill beyond my abilities. And Lord, I pray that your words would be proclaimed and that they may be able to pierce the hearts of the people that you have directed into this place. Lord, we gather around your word because we want to encounter you. So Lord, I pray that you would let us feel your love radiating from the scriptures and that you would renew our minds so that we might walk rightly on the narrow path that you have set before us. Lord, I pray that you would let us see the examples of the apostles in this passage and that by your grace that we would stand firm in our faith just as they did. Lord, more so, I pray that you would help us to look past these people in Acts chapter 12 and see your son, Jesus, even more clearly and by your spirit that you would bring genuine transformation to us now, we pray. Help us to love him. Amen. In uh, typical Baptist historical fashion, I have three points for you this morning. Persecution, providence, and prayer. Let's begin with persecution. In order to understand Acts chapter 12, we actually first need to understand the nature of the character that has now been introduced into the narrative, namely Herod, which is Herod Agrippa. Herod's more like a title, really, than a name, and it's this is not the same Herod that you're used to if you've read the Bible up to this point. So let's get the family tree in order here. <clears throat> the first Herod that we see in Scripture is Herod the Great, and he was responsible, for example, for the massacre of the children in Bethlehem when he was attempting to assassinate the Messiah. But as you remember, God instructed Joseph by an angel in a dream to take Jesus as a child and to escape from that persecution and travel into Egypt and to stay there until Herod the Great had died. And after Herod died, after that Herod died, his son called Herod Antipas arose and he took over part of the kingdom, not all of it. And in the scripture, he is most famous for beheading John the Baptist. You know that he was tricked by his brother's wife and by his niece, and then he had that uh, time where he said, I'll give you anything you want up to half my kingdom, and the girl said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so when we say that somebody brings you something on a silver platter, it's actually a reference to that moment in history. Well, he's also famous for taking part in the trial of Jesus, and we read in Luke chapter 23, verse 12, these words, it says, And Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, For before this, they had been at enmity with one another. We see that the death of Christ was able to even help great enemies join forces because they found a great enemy in Jesus. And their purpose was to exterminate this man that they viewed to be a threat to their power. So Herod and Pilate, two enemies, became friends that very day. But after his death, Herod Agrippa, the nephew of Herod Antipas, took control and he continued in that pattern of his dynasty of destruction. And he was even more of a puppet really than the previous kings had been. He had less power and he had less control and the people of Israel were not originally on his side. So he was doing everything in his possible power to gain popularity with them. So Agrippa determined that he needed to do something. He needed to do anything to get their attention and to gain their favor. And so he found the perfect target the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So they decided, I'm going. he decided, I'm going to take out James and I'm going to make these people now my friends. There are three different James in the New Testament as well as three different Herods. And there is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who is actually mentioned in this passage down in verse 17. But there is also two different uh, James who are apostles of Jesus. The first James, the half-brother of Jesus, he's the one that wrote the book of James. But then there are two that were part of the twelve that followed Jesus around for three and a half years. The first of those that we'll mention, his name is James, the son of Alphaeus, or James the Less, as he's called sometimes in scripture. We literally know nothing about that James except for his name. And finally, we have the other James who was a disciple and apostle. He is the one who was arrested and beheaded here in this passage. He was an apostle that was part of the inner circle of Jesus. He was one of the three men that Jesus brought near to him in the most intimate moments of his ministry. For example, only he, along with his brother John and and his friend Peter, were permitted to be near Jesus at the most challenging moment of Jesus' life, which was in the Garden of Gethsemane, before the cross. Only three, these three, were permitted to see Jesus raise that little girl to life when he said, Talitha kum and only these 3 were able to see the glory of Jesus revealed on that mountaintop event where he displayed what he was like in his heavenly form and when he revealed himself in that moment we call the transfiguration why is it that Jesus just brought these 3 we ultimately don't know but we do have reason to believe that Jesus was particularly close to them John James's brother he calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved and Peter we see that they have such a tight knit relationship the one we hear the least about of these 3 is James. But I have to believe that like those other two, they were deeply connected and cared for one another very much. And that this James was actually one of the closest people to our Savior during his earthly ministry. And Herod understood this. And he understood the tactical reality of this from the book of Zechariah, which says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And he knew that the Christians were so unpopular. And in his mind, the best way to get Jerusalem on his side was to take out one of their most influential generals, so he began with James. Luke gives us very limited detail about the death of James. When it says that he died by the sword, it's probably of reference to beheading, showing that Herod Antipas, the one who beheaded um, John the Baptist, was probably a big influence on his nephew. We don't know for sure that that's what he means here by execution by the sword, but that is the most common form of execution by sword. But Luke, who wrote more words than anyone else in the New Testament, and who rarely is one to describe things briefly, he barely gives any detail about this event. This event that would have been shocking and amazing and challenging and one of the most significant moments in the early church. He says practically nothing about it, just presenting it in the most simple of terms. Why does he do that? I think he does this because he's treating this event with with much dignity and with honor. As you'll see in the later parts of the chapter, this is not a kindness that was shown to Herod when Luke writes of his death. Death is unappealing. Death and the way that it appears to us can be very embarrassing when you hear the details. I think what he's doing is presenting very gently, the death of one of the great saints of the kingdom. And then later, as you'll see with Herod, he does quite the opposite. In Psalm 116, verse 15, it says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. James' physical life was cut short, yes, but all Herod could do was to usher him more quickly into eternal glory. He didn't hurt James at all. There are many who have followed in the footsteps of Herod, Although they're physically not related, there are always going to be those who arise in governmental power and stand in vehement opposition to our king. And therefore, they stand in violent opposition to those of us who seek to expand his kingdom. One modern Herod who lived in recent years, his name was Nicolae Ceausescu. I know I'm probably butchering that, Cornell, is that if you want to know how to properly pronounce this man's name, you can talk to Cornell after the service. Nicolae was the ruler of Romania in the 70s and 80s. <laughs> And he hated Christianity. In fact, he imprisoned many pastors and tortured many of them. And one of the men that he uh, arrested was named Joseph Tan, um, or Eosef Tan, I think is actually the right way to say it. And when he was being threatened by the authorities, this man famously said, Sir, your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Or as the early church father Tertullian put it, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Jesus promised that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And if hell itself cannot stop the church from growing and the kingdom of God from expanding, what on earth could Herod or Nikolai or any other human possibly seek to achieve? What on earth could they accomplish that that gates of hell could not? According to the Pew Research Center, 74% of the world's population currently live in countries where social hostilities involving Christianity are high. 64% of people who are alive right now live where government restrictions on Christianity are high. America is the exception. It is not the rule. Our religious freedoms and lack of extreme persecution, it's a gracious gift from God, but it is not the norm in Christian history. We seem to forget that we are at war not a physical war. We sang earlier in that song uh, that we would ask that the Lord would help us to resist um, in, in a holy war. Well, we're fighting against our sin. That's our main battle that we fight. But in the spiritual sense, we are also fighting what Paul calls the powers and principalities and authorities of this dark world. We are fighting a spiritual battle, and our weapon, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are not fleshly. We are not taking out physical weapons. We should not take uh, the example of what happened in the Crusades. Rather, we are fighting a spiritual battle that is global and there is a kingdom of darkness that is being overcome by the kingdom of Christ and we are part of that physical battle, that spiritual battle, not a physical one. What we see taking place here is that after James was killed, it says that Herod saw how popular this made him with the people. So what does he do? Man, if that worked, I'm gonna go after the next guy. So he goes after Peter and arrests him also. This same Peter... The same guy who was arrested here would later write in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. James could rejoice because his sufferings were taking part in Christ's sufferings. And Peter, as he is arrested, the same thing is true. And brothers and sisters, we experience very little in the way of persecution. But in the small ways that you do feel it, don't fear it. God has always used persecutions as one of the many ways that he grows his church and the ways that he brings glory to himself. It doesn't mean that he hates you. It doesn't mean that he's forgetful of you when you experience pain in that sense. It means that he has chosen you to show the surpassing value of Jesus over all this other stuff. The world is trying to get you to renounce him. They would be happy if you just turned your back on Christ and lived like they do. Persecution is designed to show the immense and surpassing value of the treasure of heaven himself. That we can say, I found this and I am unwilling to give him up for anything. So when you experience persecution, don't feel like God has turned his back on you. See that he is close to you. It means that he has chosen you to show how valuable he really is. Or as Paul tells Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. Expect it, don't fear it. That brings us now to our second point, providence. What is providence? Uh, The theologian A.W. Pink describes it this way. It's a long quote. Stick with me. He says, The providence of God is his care and provision that he makes for his creatures with his supervision and superintendence of them. The providence of God in his government over the world is a subject of deep importance to the Christian, for by proper views thereof, he will learn to see God's activities in the daily works of his hands. In other words, in the daily works of your hands, you see that what you are doing and accomplishing is not what you are doing, but what God is doing. In the 1689 London Baptist Confession, it defines providence this way. It says, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and all things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence to the end Uh, for which they were created, according unto his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of his glory, of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. It's an extensive explanation. In short, it means God's in charge of everything. It's saying that no matter what happens, the Lord is working in it. That's a simplified Caleb Bunch version. It means that there is not one maverick molecule in the universe that is out of his control, as R.C. Sproul put it. Let's see how God is good and how God is sovereignly working providentially in Peter's life for just a moment. Peter was watched over here by 16 guards. These guards were responsible to watch over him and protect him in that place so he would not escape. Remember, this was The the fact is that he has escaped twice from prison already in the book of Acts, miraculously. So this means he's a high security, he's a flight risk. So they put 16 guards specifically on him. When you see him, he is chained up between two of them sleeping. That means that when he escapes, these two guys were awake watching him. These guards, because there were 16 of them, they were designed to watch for three hours and then rotate shifts. So you would have two guards on the outside and then two guards on the inside with him. After three hours, they would switch. And so you would always have a group of people who were off duty. You would always have 12 of them that were resting and preparing for their next shift. There are 16 people responsible to watch this one man, yet this man was released. He, he was not executed right away. Why not? Well, it's because it's the Passover, and during Passover, you're not really permitted to execute anyone. That's why it says this happens during the time of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. He's trying to explain to you why it is that he wasn't immediately killed with the sword. So at this very night, it says that Herod was going to execute Peter. While he was chained up between these two guards, God woke him up by sending an angel to him, and it says that the angel literally struck him on his side. I can just, you know, see the angel kicking him, you know, trying to Hey, come on, man, wake up. This gives me a little bit of um, encouragement to think that Peter is probably a lot like me. He is a very heavy sleeper. And it also seems that like me, he's very slow to wake up because he literally thinks this whole thing is a dream as he's going through it, and it makes a little bit more sense when we understand and remember that he has just had a vision in a, a couple previous chapters where he was on that rooftop in Joppa and he sees the vision of the sheet coming down. That must have seemed very real to him. So he's probably assuming it's just like that. This is just a vision. And as this vision is taking place, he, he, he thinks it's all fake. He thinks this entire moment is just part of a dream. Even when the shackles fall off of his arms, even when he is getting dressed, even when he is walking past those two guards in the hallway, and even when he walks through the Gate and the gate literally opens by itself. He walks through and he walks down the street, and then the angel disappears and he realizes, Oh, this actually is real. This is happening. It says in verse 11 Peter came to himself and said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent an angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Now I get it. Now I see that this is actually happening. Now here's the question Why was it that Peter was spared by God? by remarkably being delivered by an angel in the, in the night. Why was it that he was delivered and the other was not? It certainly wasn't because Peter was more cunning. In fact, this passage displays him as being closer to Mr. Magoo than to James Bond. Right? The angel was doing all of the work, so why did God not send an angel to do the same exact thing for James? The answer is providence. God was working all things together for our good and for his glory. Consider for a moment a pair of more modern missionaries. In 1839, John Williams was a missionary who traveled to the New Hebrides Islands, which are now commonly known as Vanuatu. He went there in order to share the gospel with people who had never heard about Jesus before. There had never been Christian missionaries there before. There had never been a Bible there before. There had never been any attempt by anyone, as far as we know, to ever proclaim Jesus to this place. So he traveled all the way from England to them to share the gospel and he was literally killed minutes after going ashore. The people from the boat could see him being executed by those people on the shore and they could see him being torn apart by the natives who being cannibals, desecrated his body and then ate him. This man never had an opportunity to proclaim the gospel verbally on that island. Many people would view him and his ministry as a complete failure. However, when the story of that man's faithfulness was told in Scotland, God pricked the heart of a young minister named John Patton to go and also be part of that mission field. And when he arrived at the islands, he was almost immediately met with ministerial success, quite the opposite of his predecessor five years before, And almost everyone on the first island he went to in Vanuatu came to Christ. Almost everyone within a year knew Jesus as their savior. And Patton served there for 48 years with many hardships and trials. But over 48 years, he saw the overwhelming majority of that island chain destroy their idols, leave their warring and cannibalistic ways, and bow their knee to Jesus. Now, which of these two missionaries did God love more? Why is it that God permitted one of them to die before even sharing the gospel once and the other one nearly half a century of successful earthly ministry and preaching and teaching and translating the Bible for this people? This is a very personal question to me. Um, When I was in Australia as a missionary in the year 2000, I met a man from Vanuatu. He was a preacher and a missionary to the Australians. You know, ironically, uh, John Patton was from Scotland. John Williams was from England. These two guys were from the Anglicized world and yet in just a century and a half later, Vanuatu was sending missionaries to the prison colony of, of England, Australia. And this man preached for a group of us in Australia. This man was by far the most gospel-centered and Christocentric preacher I had ever heard by that time in my life. And this man could trace his direct lineage to John Patton's ministry on his personal island. This is an important question. Why is it that God permits one to do and one to die? And the answer is because of God's providence. Both of them successfully produced what God desired for them to produce in their life, and then he brought them home. You see, I hear the word providence occasionally used by folks here in our church. We use it probably more than the average church does. We we like that word. We tend to use it regularly, but as far as I can remember, it has always been used in connection with things that we see as being good. I could see the providence of God when he saved me money on my taxes this year, I could see the providence of God when he gave us our house or when he protected my kids or whatever else you might put into that category of things that we see as enjoyable. And those are all certainly true and reasons for thanking God, and they're absolutely inside of the realm of his providence. But God was also displaying his providence when James was killed by the sword and when John Williams was killed by the people of Aramongo Island and eaten by them. It was also in God's providence when you got laid off or when your car finally died for the last time or when your identity got stolen or when you got that bad report from the doctor. That stuff is also well within his will. In the song, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, the hymn writer William Cooper penned these famous words, Behind a frowning providence, there lies, hides a smiling face. In his book, Trusting God, the late great Jerry Bridges speaks about the events of Acts chapter 12. And he says, put yourself in the shoes of James' wife. And then in Peter's wife's shoes. One is grieving over the murder of her husband and the other is rejoicing over the miraculous deliverance of hers. Peter's wife rejoices in the sovereignty of God. But what does James' wife do? Was God any less sovereign in the death of James than he was in the deliverance of Peter? Is God sovereign only in the good circumstances of our lives? Is he not also sovereign in the difficult times when our hearts ache with pain? End quote, and well said, Jerry Bridges. This is good news, brothers and sisters, that God is in control of all things, that he is not just randomly falling asleep, that he is not taking a vacation. It is good news that when you look around your life and see that things appear to be falling apart, that you can trust that our God, who upholds the entire universe by the word of his power, is also gently hugging you close to himself with tender affection. That behind a frowning providence, the king of heaven himself is cradling you in his arms. And that is why in James chapter 1, verse 2, he can command us to respond to trials with joy. Because those trials are not outside the scope of God's will. Now you should hear and you should be delighted by this in your soul because it means that there is literally nothing in the world that you ever need to fear again. It means that when you lose your job, God's with you. When your child dies, God is with you. No cancer or calamity or cruelty has any control over you because it can't take anything away from you. If you have Jesus, you have everything to kind of make this full circle, remember what Gideon was saying this morning. That's why Paul closes out Romans chapter eight with those famous words from verses 38 and 39. I am sure, I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able, will be able, they have no power to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So thank God for his providence. Thank him whether you're laughing or you're crying or smiling or bawling your eyes out. He is in control, and he is working out his plan. He is loving, and you can trust him. Point number three, prayer. After such a dramatic opening of the chapter, what happens after the prison break seems almost comical. It's... uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever been there, but you, you go to a movie and it's such a serious movie. And the, the, the tone of the movie is just intense and dramatic. And then it doesn't matter how small the joke is. If there's a little joke to break the tension, you immediately laugh because there's just this massive turn. Well, here in the chapter, there seems to be the most comical event that I can think of in the entire book of Acts where there's such a seriousness of this weight of execution of James until we get down here to this point. And it just almost every time makes me laugh. What does it say? Peter makes his way to the house of John Mark's mother, where the church is gathered praying for deliverance. And in verse 13 and 14, we read, and when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy. She did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Now, we don't know much about this girl, but by the way, she is summarily dismissed. It's likely that she's very young. In fact, I would venture to guess based on what the scholars believe that she's probably around 10 to 12 years old. She's a young girl. And I wonder what Peter's thinking as he's waiting out there on the street, continuing to knock, come on guys, is anybody in there? You remember he just escaped from prison and he is in danger still of being recaptured. And uh, if this proved anything to the first century church, it makes it all the more clear that Peter's telling the truth. He didn't actually break himself out of prison because he can't even get past a locked gate into this house. But consider what is happening in this group of believers. They have gathered together to do what? To pray that he would be spared from death. And when he knocks on the door, this is how they respond in verse 15. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's an angel. Get this. Their first response is not to rejoice that God had answered their prayer. Rather, they immediately jump to the conclusion that God has not answered their prayer and that this little girl has lost her mind. And when that's not a sufficient answer, they actually come up with a conclusion that is something supernatural. Well, look, maybe you're right. Rhoda, maybe you're right. You heard something and maybe it's not even a real human being. It's probably an angel. They are so quick to dismiss the possibility that God had actually answered their prayer, that they're coming up with conclusions like an angel was the one speaking to you but there's no way it could be Peter. Then in verse 16, it says, but Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison and said to them, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And he departed and went to another place. The the Puritans had a saying for prayers like the ones being prayed by these people. They called them prayerless prayers. They're prayers that are prayed without belief or expectation. And when God is being asked in a perfunctory way to do something that we know he can do, but then we ask him in such a way that we don't really expect him to do it, that is a prayerless prayer. Now, many of you know Pastor Joe Lusby of Holly Springs Baptist Church in Mississippi. For the last couple of summers, he has come up here with a small team uh, from their church in Holly Springs to help us out with Vacation Bible School. I'm very thankful for this brother and his ministry. And uh, this week I was speaking with him on the phone just to make sure that we had some groundwork laid for uh, their team to come and serve with us this summer. And as we were talking, he shared with me a story about his younger brother. And uh, he told me that he had prayed for over 20 years almost every day for his brother to be saved. And he said that his brother was one of the last people on earth that you would ever expect to actually bow the knee to Jesus and respond to the gospel. But after a while, he said his prayers became nothing more than a routine formula of words with no expectation. If I could summarize what he said, it would be that he would faithfully pray, but would pray faithlessly. And after he um, said this over the phone to me, he said, God answered even my weakest prayers, and he saved my brother. And this man, after 20 years, came to Christ and now has been walking with the Lord faithfully for 15 years and has served the Lord well. I asked Joe if I could share this uh, with you in the sermon, and he said my brother would be overjoyed to know that his transformation by the gospel is being used in a sermon to, uh, to encourage others. Uh, I have to confess to you that I've prayed hundreds of, of if not thousands of prayers like this, prayerless prayers, I say the words, but my heart is really not expecting God to act. And for example, I confess that I prayed many times for the salvation of my siblings, but not expected that they would actually see the glory of Christ and repent and believe. But do you know what's worse? Is the hundreds of days when I haven't prayed for them at all. That my faith has been so lacking that I have not even bowed the knee in their regard. Derek Thomas says in his commentary on Acts, prayer is not a signal of last resort but of faith in the sovereignty of God, end quote. It's easy to say that we believe in the sovereignty of God. It's easy to say that we believe in his providence and that he's in control and that we trust him. But if we truly believe, then we should be on our knees pleading with him in holy conversation because he is the one who actually transforms and conforms. So we have a a very godly youth minister here at RTF. And a couple days ago, I was meeting with Gideon and he shared with me a burden of his heart He was not being critical, but he shared with me that he felt like our church does not pray as often or fervently as we should. And I I might not be getting the statement as a perfect quote, but he said something like this. He said, in our sermons, we present God as being such a big God, but then after the sermon is over, we don't go to him like he's a big God. Now, if you're anything like me, then your first reaction to boredom is to click on your phone. Rather than to get on your knees. And your first inclination to respond to hardship is by distraction rather than by devotional supplication. I fully agree with Gideon that both corporately and privately, we need to pray. We need to be faithful, and I am seeking ways to employ more avenues for corporate prayer here at RGF, and one of the ways that we are going to start doing that together as a body is if you are able and willing and desirous to do so, anyone that's interested, we're going to start praying downstairs at nine o'clock in the morning on Sunday mornings before the service. We'll go from about nine to about 9.30. If you are able to come and to join us in that we want to gather corporately to pray to the Lord. It was Martin Luther who said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. We need to be constantly before the face of God. So let me land the plane by grounding this point in the gospel. God has no reason to listen to us. I mean, ultimately, he has every reason to ignore us. Other than the fact that he loves us, he, he would ignore us. But in his love, he has displayed himself to be absolutely desirous to be one with us so much so that he sent his son Christ to die for us. God in love sent his only son to live and die in our place and he sent Jesus to bear the wrath of God that we deserve. So God himself restored the relationship that was broken by our sin and so for all of us who believe in his son we are made new we are made pure and righteous before him. Now if you're not a Christian thank you for coming. I am so glad that the Lord has sovereignly brought you here today. And if you will trust in Jesus Christ, who died for sinners like you and me, then you also will be saved. And I want you to see that your entire life, you have lived in opposition to God. But I want you to turn from that and embrace the Savior who came to be your substitute. And if you only believe in him, you will be saved and your sin will be forgiven and you will be restored and made a new creation. So for those of us who do know him, we have a great honor. We have a great privilege to take part in the ongoing mission of building God's kingdom. And I hope that you see here, I am not attempting to guilt you into being more prayerful. First of all, that wouldn't work, even if that was my goal. Because guilt doesn't actually produce genuine love for God, which is the true motivating factor in prayer. Taste and see that spending time in the presence of God is good. Delight in the presence of God. Enjoy being before the throne. And more than anything... That love for Christ is going to produce in you a longing for prayer that is unceasing. So as you know, we can do nothing apart from him. So of course we should be there. And if we really believe he's sovereign, we will rely on him. And if we trust in him, we will be like the church in Jerusalem to gather together and cast our cares upon the Lord for we know that he cares for us. But like the Jerusalem church, There are going to be occasions when our week is uh, frail and feeble. And there will be occasions when we are on our knees, but our hearts are wavering. And in those moments, we need to pray like that man in Mark chapter 10. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. My closing prayer this morning is going to be from the Valley of Vision, which is a collection of Puritan prayers. And I have altered it slightly to make it more congregational rather than individual and personal. And uh, this particular prayer includes confessing Uh, of being a prayerless prayer, somebody who says the words, but their heart's not there. So I ask you to join me now, silently praying along in faith that God would hear our cry. Let's pray. O Lord, no day of our lives have passed that have not proved us guilty in your sight. Prayers have been uttered from our prayerless heart. Praise has been often praiseless sound. Our best services are like filthy rags. Blessed Jesus, let us find freedom in appeasing thy wounds. Though our sins have risen to heaven, thy merit soars far above them. Though unrighteousness weighs us down to hell, thy righteousness exalts us to thy throne. All things in us call for our rejection. All things in you plead for our acceptance. I appeal from the throne of perfect justice, to the throne of boundless grace, grant us to hear your voice assuring that by your stripes we are healed, that you were bruised for our iniquities, that you were made sin for us, that we can be found righteous in you, and that our grievous manifold sins are all forgiven. They are buried in the ocean of thy concealing blood. We are guilty but pardoned lost but saved, wandering but found, sinning but cleansed. Give us perpetual brokenheartedness. Keep us away from ourselves and always clinging to thy cross. Flood us every moment with descending grace. Open to us the springs of divine knowledge, sparkling like crystal and flowing clear and unsullied through the wilderness of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.